from Kirko Media. So what you gonna do about it? Strange times. None of us really have a handle on how long we're going to be living in this sequestered lifestyle and work style. We feel for you if you or your family are sick. And certainly we feel for the folks who are most affected by the economic condition that we're going through. We've got a special politics meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. A little bit about our amazing panel today. Firstly, our co-host, a Pulitzer Prize winning historian, author, worldwide lecturer, and coronavirus zoomed in database of everything historical and constitutional, Professor Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? Oh, Bill. Also zooming in, one of our favorite co-hosts, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who's represented the U.S. interests in Washington, D.C., Europe, Russia, and then some. She's worked with high-level government officials in many countries on many international trade disputes. So she's got a rare perspective that we're again honored to have here on our show. Jane has also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. She's a busy woman. How you doing, Jane? Just fine. And our special guest, Congressman Ted Lieu. He represents California's 33rd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. He is serving his third term in Congress, and he's currently sitting on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He has also been elected by his colleagues to serve as co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. Ted has established himself as a leader on the environment, cybersecurity, civil liberties, and government ethics and veterans. Congressman Ted Liu, we're honored to have you zooming in with us today. Thank you, Bill. Honored to be on your show with Ed and Jane. So, Ed, we always like to start with you, if you don't mind. You just published a piece in The Bulwark. People can check it out and Google The Bulwark. COVID-19, the ditherer-in-chief. Tell us a bit about it. What I do is I look back as a historian at times when presidents acted decisively. And the three most famous presidents in that respect are Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. They all had crises. They all pulled together expertise, and they came to firm actions that energized the country. And the question is, what really is Trump doing? Does he have a policy? He seems to move from one to another. It's so different, say, when Ronald Reagan took office in the middle of the worst inflation America had suffered during the century and made the decisions necessary to break the back of that inflation, including laying off the only union that had supported him, the air traffic controllers. Okay, well, that being said, Ted, how are you holding up in these COVID times? So I'm on a lot of conference calls uh, with uh, other members of Congress, as well as Zoom calls, and we're working on a fourth uh, piece of legislation to address this pandemic. We've already passed three bipartisan laws to uh, jumpstart vaccine research, to expand unemployment insurance, to get stimulus checks out to Americans, uh, to get small business loans out to businesses. My personal belief is that The first stimulus uh, package called CARES is too small and too short. We need to have a second one, and that's what we're working on right now. Do you expect the structure of the stimulus to change, the length of time that it covers to change? So there are a number of parts of the law that I think have to be corrected. So the Paycheck Protection Program has been great for uh, many small businesses, but there are a number of them that can't access this program. 
because of various ways the law is written and things that banks have been doing in terms of requiring a pre-existing relationship or a pre-existing loan. So we want to try to expand that program to allow for more small businesses to access it. I believe the stimulus checks were too small and uh, too brief. I don't think a one-time infusion of funds to American families is going to work because there's no evidence that this virus goes away in a few weeks. It looks like this virus is going to be with us for the long term until there is a vaccine or a drug therapy. So I believe we're going to have to provide recurring financial assistance uh, to American families. So, Congressman, I wonder if we could play a, a bit of a game here. And this is not a fair question, but congratulations for the sake of this podcast. You're now in charge. So we would like to ask you how you will personally handle mapping our way out of this mess from here. Uh, that's a great question. It starts with testing and isolating the virus. So we all want to reopen America as soon as we can, but we can't do that if we don't know where this virus is. And the only way we will know that is if we test people at scale on a national basis. And then if we trace who they've been in contact with, if they test positive, so we can then test those people and then make sure we have a very good picture of where the virus is. And then where we know the virus is not, we can start reopening those parts of America. Clearly our public health officials need better data, that data comes from testing. But I haven't been hearing much talk in the news conferences about getting testing out broadly. They keep talking about getting the testing to people who are sick or to our healthcare providers or essential workers. Is anyone talking about getting testing out so that a broad portion of the population can be tested? Democrats are. Okay. Uh, we see the Trump administration continue to give happy talk on testing. The top five countries right now in terms of the number of coronavirus cases are the United States, which leads the world, followed by Spain, Italy, France, and Germany. So we have to dramatically scale up testing so that we can be testing everywhere so that we know where the virus is. Dr. Fossey recently said we are not there yet. We're not at that capacity. And essentially, until we get there, we can't really reopen large parts of America because you can't be sending people back to work if the virus is still spreading where they work or in their neighborhood. Is the government talking about funding all this testing and sending it out to the states, or is it all going to be done privately? In the bipartisan laws that Congress has passed, we put in a significant amount of money for testing. So it's up to the executive branch to simply execute it. It is not where we should be, but it is increasing. So the hope is that in the next few weeks, we can go to a place where we have a lot more testing. The president does have a habit of saying things at press conferences or doing things for a show and then not following through. Uh, so hopefully we'll get there someday, but clearly we're not there yet. And we simply have to hold the administration's feet to the fire. Is the goal in the legislation to essentially get every American tested? So you would want to test everyone who has symptoms or has been in contact with anyone who has symptoms. And then you want to do some random testing to make sure that the virus isn't spreading among asymptomatic carriers. So we want to follow the model of South Korea, where they do a very large amount of testing. They've been able to suppress the virus relatively well.
Congressman, I'd like to kind of separate the thought process here for just a minute. Leading the country through the process, you want to do things like flatten the curve. You don't want to overwhelm the hospitals. You want to bring the economy back to life. You want to lose as few people as possible and proceed by, you know, leading us to a better, sunnier day. Got it. Now let's talk about our listeners, about whether or not they should feel comfortable going out to a theater or a restaurant or work or a train or a plane And I'd like to know what your recommendation is to individuals rather than this is how we're going to govern our way through the process. Uh, Until there is a vaccine or a drug therapy that works, you should absolutely not go anywhere near six feet of a stranger. That means you should not go on a plane unless you absolutely have to. You should not go to a movie theater unless you absolutely have to. You should not go to a restaurant and sit next to someone unless you absolutely have to. You need to be social distancing and maintaining six feet of separation because you don't know who may or may not be carrying this virus. And this virus doesn't just have a kill rate that's more than 10 times that of the flu. About 15% of people who get it get so sick they have to go to the hospital. So even if you don't die, it can knock you out for weeks and weeks and weeks, drive up your medical bills, and put you through a very traumatic experience. This is a very, very bad virus, and people just need to understand that. You do not want to get it, because if you do, there's a 2% chance that you will die, but if you don't die, there's about a 15, 20% chance you're going to get so sick, you have to be hospitalized. Of all the people that we've heard and all the people that we've listened to on press conferences, on CNN or wherever we're watching, you are the first one to actually speak straight as an arrow on what the situation is for us, not for governance, not for cityhoods and statehoods and the country, not for hospitals, but for us. And I want to thank you for that because that means a lot. Is there anything that government can do to shorten the time between here and a vaccine. Some of this talk about reopening America, I think misses the mark because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the president says or what your governor says or even your mayor. If you don't feel safe, you're just not gonna go to that restaurant. You're not gonna fly, you're not gonna go on a cruise ship, you're not gonna go to a movie theater. You're gonna continue to take actions to protect yourself And that by itself is going to slow down our economy. Uh, So there's only so much government can do to reopen America as long as there's this public health crisis. The only true way to reopen our country is to have a cure for what's ailing us, which would be either a vaccine or a drug therapy. Uh, Congressman, you mentioned how Americans should social distance regardless of what the government says. Would you recommend even greater caution to older Americans than say people in their 20s? Or would you say the same advice is good for everyone? Uh, That's a great question. It is true that COVID-19 has a disproportionate impact on older Americans, uh, people age 65 and older, as well as those with pre-existing conditions. It's also true that the majority of people hospitalized in the United States are under the age of 65. So this virus uh, can affect anyone of all ages, it tends to affect older Americans more. But for example, people who are aged 50 to 59, there's a 1.3% chance of you dying if you get this virus. That's worldwide statistics. 
So even you know, for people under 65, it can be quite lethal. So, Congressman, I wonder if, if I could get back to the mapping our way out of here for a moment. Let's assume that it's a year and a half, two years before we have a vaccine. What are the guiding factors on how you bring the economy back to life over the course of the time between here and a, a viable vaccine? It's not sustainable to basically have people stay in their home for a year and a half. That simply is not going to work, which is why we need to first have massive testing at scale so we know where the virus is and where it is not. And then those places where we don't see much evidence of the virus, we try to put people back to work in those geographic locations. At the same time, we have to shift how we work. So to the extent that people can work remotely, then they should work remotely. So this is impacting a lot of different institutions and organizations across America. And that's why I think the first COVID relief package was simply not big enough. That's why we're working on a second one. Congressman, have people been looking at all at a country like Sweden, which has gone sort of a middle route where they have allowed the businesses to stay open, but on a more social distance basis where they kept the, I believe the grade schools open, but closed the colleges. And yet, if you look at Sweden, its rates of infection and death are basically the same as their two neighbors, Norway and Denmark, which are shut down like a drum. Uh, so thank you for bringing uh, that country up. I think people are waiting to see actually what happens uh, with Sweden. If you can maintain six feet of social distancing, that could be one way to uh, reopen some businesses and in, in some places in America. Uh, there are some places where it wouldn't make any sense to maintain six feet of social distancing because of the nature of the activity. Uh, so for example, you couldn't have a concert and maintain six feet of social distancing. That wouldn't make any sense. You couldn't really have you know, an NFL football game and have six feet of social distancing. So I think it would depend on what that activity was. If Sweden shows it can do that by doing six feet of social distancing and that's enough, then that could be an approach that we take. We're going to take a really quick break and come right back with Congressman Ted Lieu in just a minute. When we come back, we're going to address two main issues. We're going to talk about our relationship with other countries and how that's challenged. Then we're going to touch a bit on civil liberty issues that could arise from all of this testing. We'll be right back. It will be A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take of care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being You're questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. So what you gonna do about it? We're back with Congressman Ted Lieu, Jane Albrecht, and Ed Larson. Congressman, let's talk about the uniqueness of the American people and their desire for civil liberties. And when you start talking about testing, 
and we certainly have to prove that we don't have this virus. Do you expect that to become a civil liberties issue? Uh, it's possible. Uh, one of the things that I have found to be good news is that the overwhelming majority of American people are following the stay-at-home orders. We're also seeing overwhelming majority of the public supporting these stay-at-home orders. And I think it goes back to the recognition by most Americans that this virus is pretty lethal. Uh, they really don't want to get it. They don't want their family member to get it. Again, regardless of what government does or says, I think people are going to take actions to protect themselves from this virus. Let's bring up the subject that you talked about a few minutes ago where you were addressing our relationship internationally on a global scale. How is this going to be managed so that we don't injure our relationship with China? And my part two of that question is, what will we do to make sure that the Chinese are not subject to inappropriate racism? So what China did in suppressing evidence about this virus is indefensible. Uh, China has a lot to answer to the world. China should not have engaged uh, in hiding information about this virus at the beginning. That's a different issue than what do we do about the fact that this virus is all over the world right now, including the U.S., and we have to work together with other countries. Uh, I also note uh, that we're in a worldwide pandemic, and we need uh, the best and brightest, and we need to learn uh, from anyone regardless of where they are. So it turns out that Taiwan, for example, is not part of the World Health Organization. It was Taiwan that sounded an alarm and said, hey, we believe this virus can be spread between humans. And unfortunately, the World Health Organization did not take Taiwan seriously. I think one reason is because Taiwan is, they don't allow them to be a member. Uh, they unfortunately listened to China at the beginning and the World Health Organization got it wrong. Regarding your second question, words do matter. And so this virus already has an official name, COVID-19. It has an unofficial name, coronavirus. So when you stick an ethnic adjective in front of it, it can cause hate crimes to happen against Asian Americans in the United States. A recent article in uh, New York Magazine appeared, which showed that after the president used the term Chinese virus, over 650 incidents of hate crimes were reported against Asian Americans. And what we want to do is make sure that people don't engage in hate crimes against Americans who happen to be of Asian descent. Do you think us pulling out of the health, World Health Organization or unfunding it is, is the right way to go in this circumstance? No, the World Health Organization uh, is focused on people's health and focused on science. I don't think it is a good idea in the middle of a pandemic uh, to cut funding to the World Health Organization. And as long as you have this virus, it is going to be not just in the U.S., but other countries. And so you want to reduce it everywhere. Because at some point, the U.S. is going to allow in more people from other countries. It harms our national security, our public health, if uh, we don't contain this virus worldwide. I wonder if you could describe to us what Trump's philosophy is for making the decision to defund the World Health Organization. I don't pretend to understand how the president thinks. Uh, I don't know what his thought process is. I think it is uh, stupid to uh, not fund an organization that's trying to help uh, reduce uh, 
uh, this virus and contain its spread. The fact that this virus exists in other parts of the world will continue to be a threat to the health of Americans here in the United States. Are we abandoning our position in the world? So I have not seen a lot of leadership from our current president on a number of issues, uh, not just on health care, but also on various other parts of foreign policy. So what he did is not surprising. The American people have a decision to make this November if they want to continue down this chaotic course or they can elect a new leader. There's no question that this pandemic has had an earthquake level effect on the political landscape for the coming elections. How do you see the pandemic changing that landscape? We know it's going to have an effect on how people vote. Uh, There's no evidence that this virus somehow disappears in November. So as long as the virus is still out there, it's going to cause people to want to vote by mail. Uh, So for the second stimulus package, uh, we're going to work on uh, making it easier for states to get that funding for vote by mail. I personally believe we need a mandate to force all states to provide that option. So it's hard to tell what's going to happen in November. I think how people vote is going to change somewhat, but I think there's still high enthusiasm among Democrats and independents who dislike the current president to go out and vote. When you look at what we were thinking about pre-COVID, don't you think it's changed the issues on people's minds as we go into this election? Or do you think it's going to be pretty much the same issues? No, I think a lot of people are going to focus on what Donald Trump did or didn't do during this pandemic. And I think that will be a factor in their decision making. And just as a factual matter, I think it's very really hard for the president to explain how he did a good job when we lead the world in a number of cases and we have the highest amount of deaths. Uh, it's just very difficult to look at those numbers and say, yeah, the president did a good job because uh, he did not. Pre-pandemic, we were all focusing on debates, the democratic field. We were following that very closely. Now, not so much. How do you see that ramping up as time goes on? Until we significantly reduce the number of deaths and the number of new cases, I think this is going to be the only story. And I think that's a good thing. We need Americans to focus on this, to learn as much as they can about this virus, to take actions to protect themselves. There will be time uh, for politics later. I think it's okay if we don't hear much about Joe Biden right now. I think we want to hear from medical experts and uh, from our nation's governors and mayors. And we want to make sure that we first protect the American people. What do you think is going to happen with the convention? Do you think the conventions are going to go forward? And if they do go forward, as you said, are people going to want to go? Uh, I can't imagine doing a convention and having six feet of social distancing. I just don't know how that's going to work out uh, unless miraculously we get some sort of drug therapy before then. How do you think this is going to affect campaigning? How do you campaign in the era of corona? So until we have evidence that the virus is really not in a certain geographic location, I think it's going to be difficult to get people to start knocking on people's doors. I think people aren't going to want to open those doors either. So a lot of it is virtual. And then a lot of it is shifting to telephones as well as text messaging. So there's still ways to communicate with people. It's just not going to be person to person. Do you have any advice to Joe Biden on how he should personally pursue his own positions and his own method of operating to get to the presidency? 
One reason Democrats flipped the House in 2018 is because of the health care issue. Uh, poll after poll shows that the public trusts Democrats much more in health care. And then we know that with this pandemic, the voters were right to trust Democrats more in health care. We were way early in sounding the alarm on this pandemic. In February, when the president was AWOL on this whole coronavirus issue, Democrats in the House were already writing legislation to address this pandemic. We were already holding hearings uh, on coronavirus. And so the public uh, understands uh, that Democrats are much stronger on health care, and now they understand this is affecting their lives. So I think uh, Joe Biden should focus on health care uh, from now all the way uh, to November. So in your first year of a new administration and a new session, can you give us an idea on some of the accomplishments you'd like to put under your ledger? So hopefully we have a Biden administration and hopefully we're close to a cure until we get a cure. I don't think there's much else uh, that we should be doing or can be doing. Once we get a cure, then we have to focus on some of the systemic issues that have been affecting us. We have to pass climate change legislation. We have to uh, expand healthcare and get to a point where we have universal healthcare. And then we have to uh, make sure that people who don't have the skills in a 21st century economy do get those skills and that those children get those skills as well. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to jump back to the global markets and ask you a bit about our national security and military in a COVID environment. We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So what you gonna do about it? Well, we're back. And Ted, being that you're on the Foreign Relations Committee, let's look at this as a, as a more global question. What's going on right now with our national security, our military, our relationships internationally, and our efforts around the world in places like Afghanistan? All of these things were real problems only a couple of months ago. And it seems like, at least for the American people, they've taken a backseat. I had a conversation with the Secretary of the Air Force last week. Uh, the military is implementing social distancing. and At the same time, they're executing their missions. Because this pandemic is affecting all the countries in the world, it's uh, not clear to me that any particular country is trying to engage in war or trying to take advantage of other countries territorially because this pandemic uh, has such life-threatening potential for members of their own country. It is difficult, but the military is executing uh, all of its missions uh, to the best of its capability. Is North Korea uh, subject to COVID? I've got to assume that coronavirus is in North Korea. We just don't know because they're such a close society. We don't have very much data on what's happening there. But I find it hard to believe that with them being close to uh, China and South Korea, that they would have zero cases. We had a couple of podcasts not too long ago talking about Afghanistan and the treaty that we signed with the Taliban and the Afghan government. And since then, we understand that the, the Taliban is 
right back to attacking the Afghans. Do we have a strategy there at this point? So I was one of the few Democrats that spoke out in support of Donald Trump when he signed that agreement and when he uh, said that we need to pull our troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, I agree with him. Uh, it is also true that that agreement uh, that the United States signed with the Taliban did start to go south pretty quickly. So the administration is trying to salvage it. I hope they can. So we'll we'll know more uh, in the next few months. You and your governor are both global thought leaders when it comes to preserving our environment. How do you see us doing right now during the COVID crisis in focusing on that? So in the short term, the environment has gotten a little bit of a boost with less air pollution, less smog because of the shutdown of economic activity. Uh, but once the economies of the world start up again, then that's going to go away. And for the long term, we're going to need climate change legislation to make sure that our children and our grandchildren can have an earth that is um, at least the same as we have it now and not much worse. Uh, we know that all the predictions of scientists from decades ago uh, with the effects of global warming and what's going to happen are becoming true now. And so we just need to work on passing climate change legislation as soon as possible. And what would some of the most important legislations look like? Uh, so I was a co-author of AB 32, California's Landmark Global Warming Solutions Act. One reason I think that that law was successful is we didn't go out and say, hey, here is 2,751 things we want you to do to mitigate global warming. Instead, we set a goal. We said we wanted to go to pre-1990 levels of greenhouse gases by 2020. And then we gave an agency immense power to take us to that goal. So the first bill I wrote and authored in Congress uh, basically takes that approach and makes it national. It sets goals of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and then it gives the Department of Energy and the EPA the power to take us to reach those goals. As we bring this to a close, I'd like you to uh, take a look at this from a slightly more ethereal level. You know, when you have a computer and it's not acting right, you can unplug the computer, you turn it off, you restart it, and magically it seems to run a little better. Well, uh, you, you always want to look at the blessings even where the disasters lie. We have unplugged society, and we're going to plug it back in again. What are some of the changes that you'd like to see us make in society that would make that reboot worthwhile? Well, the first thought I have is it is amazing to me the courage of the American people. Uh, I have seen all these healthcare workers, whether they're nurses or doctors or other healthcare professionals, go into hospitals every day, putting their lives at risk. Uh, they know if they get this virus, there is a certain percent uh, that are going to die or they're going to get so sick they themselves have to be hospitalized. And yet they're working as hard as they can trying to save others. And I think. That's something that we should uh, all take pride in and be grateful for, all these amazing healthcare professionals that are showing immense courage every day, just showing up to work and doing what they need to do to take care of others. And then when we um, reboot our economies again, I think we should try to work remotely uh, to the extent possible, because again, that saves energy costs, it saves um, uh, transportation costs. 
And as more and more people realize they can work remotely, I think that's actually going to be a net positive uh, for society. And then we're just going to have to be more cautious of our interactions with people in terms of physical distancing, because this doesn't just help with coronavirus. Uh, it also causes less cases of, for example, the flu and any other disease that is transmitted through person-to-person contact. There actually would be some net benefits if we actually had better hygiene among people, both in the home and and in public. And I think that could actually just generally reduce disease rates. And clearly, it would be nice if we came back to a society that was a little less partisan, a little less angry, and actually as supportive as we've all seen many people being, helping their neighbors, shopping for neighbors, and actually looking for ways that they can make the planet a better place. Uh, that's a great point. The first two letters I wrote to the White House Coronavirus Task Force addressed to Mike Pence, the first two words in those two letters were thank you. Uh, so I do think there is a spirit of bipartisanship. Uh, we've seen that in the three laws that Congress has passed on bipartisan basis, and I hope that uh, continues. Congressman Ted Lieu, thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you'll come back. Your insight and your depth and your willingness to answer tough questions were certainly appreciated. And of course, Jane, your spectacular co-pilot here, and we hope you come back all the time. Ed, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there are lots of resources to learn more about the stimulus package and how it applies to you. There's irs.gov forward slash coronavirus, treasury.gov, the Social Security site, ssa.gov. And if you're a small business or an independent contractor, the Small Business Administration is a world of information, access, and applications at sba.gov. So check out our special guest at tedlieu.com. That's T-E-D-L-I-E-U.com. Or his congressional website, lieu.house.gov. Thanks so much for joining. We'll see you again soon. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. It will be okay. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.